0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick.
1: And it's Saturday, time for a Vault episode. Deep in the Vault, I hear the fluttering of wings.
0: Yeah, that's right. This is our episode, Send an Owl slash Raven slash Pigeon. This episode basically explores the actual use of pigeons, uh, to, uh, to relay messages from one point to another, but then also exploring the use of ravens and owls in our various fictions, namely um, uh, The Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin and J.K. Rowling's uh, Harry Potter series. Uh, to what extent do these make sense? Could an owl actually deliver a message? How smart is an owl? How capable of, of being trained is an owl? And likewise, what's the situation with the raven? Uh, this is what, uh, these are the, the questions that this episode attempts to Answer. We hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. You know, Joe, in my household, we're slap dab in the middle of uh, Harry Potter mania. Oh, right yeah. Now. You've been telling me all about it, dude. Yeah, yeah. We're uh, reading our seven-year-old the books. We're making our way through the movies. And my son applies just an amazing level of focus and determination to all these Harry Potter Lego kits.
1: Oh, now you got to tell me about those because I love Legos. And
0: I am hoping someday in my life to be able to play with Legos again. Oh, well, yeah. The, the Lego kits are pretty great. Uh, they're not a sponsor. But I'm just saying. <laughs> the uh, um, uh, they're they're a lot of fun. The mm-hmm. um, uh, the Hogwarts especially is, is quite uh, quite a kit. Uh, but, but you know he also has a stuffed owl, uh, which he has of course named Hedwig ah. after Harry Potter's owl. Uh-huh. And uh, at the same time. Uh, when he goes to bed, my wife and I are currently enjoying the final season of Game of Thrones. As am I yeah. and, and my wife, yeah. yeah. We... Okay, so you're current? Oh yeah, we're okay. hooked, yeah. Yeah. There won't be any spoilers in this episode, but but I'm glad that we're on the same uh, wavelength. And uh, you know, and one day, I think I'll, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually finishing reading the books as well once they're all written. Oh yeah, so are you actually caught up to where the books are in the Song of Ice and Fire series? I am. I'm, okay. caught, I'm caught up and uh, eagerly awaiting the uh, subsequent volumes. Me too, I I've read them all
1: and now it's been so long I'm going to have to go back and read them again before the next one comes out. I'm going
0: to have to hit the Wikipedia entries. (laughs) So- in the wizarding world of, uh, of the J.K. Rowling created, mm-hmm. uh, the magical community, they use owls to send messages back and forth. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's beautiful and it's a subtly magical part of the book, right? Playing on their traditional ideas of witches and wizards having familiars, as well as the very properties of owls that make them seem mystical, right? Their silence, their nocturnal habits, their wise appearance, <laughs> Uh, but uh, in reality, as we'll discuss, no one actually uses an owl to send messages in the real
1: world. But the more general idea of using birds to send messages is not so magical and not so far-fetched. I guess that's what we're going to be talking about today.
0: Yeah, and likewise, uh, George R. R. Martin's uh, Song of Ice and Fire books mm-hmm. uh, and the HBO uh, TV, TV adaptation Game of Thrones.
1: Uh, now, um, folks, if we call the books Game of Thrones today, don't get
0: on our case, okay? Right. It's just it's the same thing. It's just what we've been pro- Program to do at this point. But in both properties... Uh, ravens are the bird of choice for members of the Citadel to relay messages to and from various castles, cities, and important locations. Yeah, they're the email of Westeros. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's it's described in the books that these clever messengers usually uh, only function like real-world messenger pigeons, right? They that that uh, some are smarter and capable of traveling to multiple locations, but for the most part, you're sending a message from one place to another, right? Yeah, that's right. Actually, to uh, without any spoilers,
1: to extremely effect sometimes in the TV show, especially Mm -hmm. where like, it seems like somebody will write a message, put it on a raven, send it off, and they get results within like a day when it was supposed to travel a thousand miles. (laughs) I'm not quite sure exactly how that happens. Well, yeah, things have to
0: move a lot lot faster in the TV series, right?
1: I think this has led to a lot of memes where like ravens have jetpacks
0: on them and stuff. (laughs) Well, and then they also have, uh, I believe there's an additional separate species, a white raven, that's used by the citadel for particularly important messages Hmm. Um,
1: i don't recall that but there's a lot of detail in the books that didn't even
0: stick i think i've had a lot of a lot of time with game of thrones to to forget many different uh details uh, myself but uh you know i think all this works nicely in the books and the tv series because it puts a an alternative of uh universe kind of spin on everything right like in your world it's a pigeon but in in, uh, in Westeros, it is uh, it is a raven. And then, uh, you know, it's kind of like some of the other uh, spins that they do, like like having this uh, predominantly polytheistic uh, version of medieval Western culture. Uh, uh, so sort of this altered, uh, you know, vision of how bloodlines and genetics work. Though I do think they're interesting, uh, not to turn this into a,
1: just a Game of Thrones episode, there's some interesting parallels between the religions in the Game of Thrones world and, uh, and the religions of Western Europe. Like so, you originally have these pagan polytheistic religions, but uh, I know George R. R. Martin has commented that the faith of the Seven in the books and the TV show mm-hmm. is really an analogy for the Catholic Church, yes, even th- because yeah. it has you know uh, even th- it is considers itself a monotheistic religion. It has a Trinity, it has uh, many saints and other figures, and and he just said, well, I just went ahead and made them all gods.
0: Yeah, he he had he did a great job of of taking things that were familiar mm-hmm. and tweaking them just a little bit to where they still felt familiar like you didn't have to you know take a running start at uh, understanding the religious world of game of thrones but it was a little bit different just a just just a little bit skewed in a way that made it uh, uh you know resonate a little more yeah and uh, and likewise, the ravens fit perfectly in this you know this grim, dark setting because the raven, of course, is a bird that's associated with uh, with darkness and carnage, yeah. and so it makes sense that uh, the characters would be using this bird to send their messages as opposed to the peaceful dove or pigeon. Yeah, uh, pecking bits of flesh from dead bodies on the battlefield right. is how the
1: raven is often imagined, but. The way the ravens are used in the book, as we've already alluded to, is actually very analogous to real-life uses of messenger
0: pigeons. That's right. Uh, messenger pigeons, carrier pigeons. Uh, this is uh, an actual method uh, that, that we use and have used for thousands of years to deliver messages across long distances. Um and and it's uh, it's, not, it's not really a, it's not like a magically trained pet it's more of an animal that will dependently dependently return home after you transport it somewhere else and then let it free which is a much
1: less impressive trick though still impressive yes uh i mean i it would be pretty amazing if you could just like send one to another city on command and then it would come back
0: right it's like imagine doing it with say a gorilla from the local zoo uh-huh. where you're like i want to send a message To the zoo where this gorilla lives, Uh okay, well, I'm going to take one of its gorillas with me Uh uh, when I visit uh, another city. Then I will will give the gorilla the message, let the gorilla loose, and the gorilla will, of course, return home, thus delivering the message. So I guess that's where you get the idea. You may have heard the phrase a homing pigeon. Right. Yes, it is returning home. So here we are uh, we 're talking about pigeons we 're talking about owls, and we 're talking about ravens. Mm-hmm. Uh, we figure we, we know that um, uh, homing pigeons uh, this has been a subject that that numerous uh, uh, podcasts have covered. I know Josh and Chuck covered uh, uh, homing pigeons a while back on their show oh that doesn 't surprise me yeah and, uh, and so we, we wanted to 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 discuss them, but we figured this might spice it up a bit to also discuss them in relation to the owls and the ravens of Uh, the world of Harry Potter, and uh, the world of Westeros. And in doing so, we'll be able to highlight uh, why the pigeon uh, has worked so well for these purposes and why we use the pigeon, and likewise, why we don't actually use ravens and owls. What is it about ravens and owls that... That would make them ideal for this sort of work, and then also what you know prevents us from using them for this uh, sort of work uh, to begin with. Well, I say let's go pigeon first. Yeah, let's go. Let's let's hit reality, and then we'll dip our toes into the fantasy a bit. So first of all, you know, let's let's consider some of the you know the the epic facts uh, uh, from the history of homing pigeons uh, that I think. Uh, should ground their use in a real world that feels as epic as anything from Westeros. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, So first of all, it seems that pigeons were originally domesticated for food, Uh, in the Middle East and in Europe, much in the same way that uh, the jungle fowl that we now call a chicken was originally domesticated in India and East Asia. Uh, So they were domesticated for their meat, for their eggs, Mm -hmm. which uh, uh, a pigeon has tiny eggs, but you can't eat them. Uh, The pigeon uh, is maybe not as robust as a modern, uh, you know, hormonally enhanced chicken, uh, but it still is edible. I mean, again, if you've read
1: the uh, Song of Ice and Fire books, one of the common menu items at feasts and stuff is roast squab or stuffed squab. Of Mm -hmm. course, squab would be like a young pigeon.
0: Yeah, and you can still find squab on on menus uh, in various places. Mm -hmm. Now, when we're talking about homing pigeons, the homing pigeon is technically Columba Livia Domestica. That's the domestic version of the rock pigeon, which is just Columba
1: Livia. Now, one interesting fact about the common pigeon, the rock pigeon – uh, also known as the rock dove, in their natural habitats, they're cliff dwellers. They tend to live and nest on cliff faces and rock ledges, which probably at least partially explains why they thrive so well in modern urban landscapes full of buildings that function as artificial cliff faces. That's true. And I think we talked about this some um, with, uh, with uh, our guest, Jason Ward, who came on the show once to talk about uh, urban evolution, especially of
0: birds. Absolutely. A highly successful species. But back before their success was so guaranteed, yeah, they were this uh, this wonderful edible bird mm-hmm. that you could stuff in cages pretty easily. And uh, as you might imagine, people were, you know, kept their birds and they uh, and doing so prohibited them from flying away. And as they traveled around with these birds, then then I'm assuming they probably discovered the curious and dependable way that these birds could then return to their home nest across uh, increasingly long distances. Mm and uh, as such uh we have been using bur- these pigeons for thousands of years to deliver messages uh it is a, you know it is a it is a pretty ancient practice yeah but it appears to emerged out of this original de- domestication for food first to eat them and then you put them to work <laughs> right which, uh, which you know, it sounds rather. This is ultimately, we're talking about a very mundane use of the bird, right? We're going to mm. use it for eating, and we're going li- to use it for delivering messages. But it's also worth noting that pigeons have a sacred significance in many cultures, uh, though we often refer to them in doves in that in, in these instances, at least in the English language, right? But pigeon and dove—it's the same thing. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the about birds from the family Columbidae, which is doves and pigeons. Um, but you know, we can think to the roles of say doves in Christian symbolism, uh, and even as a kind of a secular symbol of peace, right? Uh, releasing doves, um, uh, you know, uh, to, is uh, you know an, a, a, a symbolic act, right? Uh, likewise, we can tr- go all the way back to ancient Sumerian Mesopotamia, uh, where we see the use of uh, the dove as an associated uh, animal of the goddess uh, Inanna.
1: Ah, we love Inanna on this show. But that's interesting because Inanna has multiple valences. Inanna can be, of course, like a fierce goddess of war who screams death through the re- rebel lands. Mm-hmm. Or she can be, you know, like a peaceful goddess of fertility. She has kind of both meanings in different contexts. And I wonder which which way the dove comes in there. Is it like the way we associate doves with peace? Or is it the way that doves can be used to send messages and gather intelligence during war?
0: Yeah, I mean, as just as a, a means of conveying information, it can serve both ends. Right, but it does really seem like this—you know—this prior relationship of domestication with the pigeon is ultimately what sets it up for use as the carrier bird. Mm -hmm. Um, Earlier, people domesticated them, lived with them, and picked up on their abilities. And really, the only other bird—think to the other birds that um, have a legacy of domestication—and and in each one, we can try to imagine to what extent they could have actually been used to carry messages. I mean, you have the the chicken. It's not going (laughs) to work. The duck, the goose. I'm imagining
1: it though. That's the carrier chicken. Yeah, yeah.
0: The messenger chicken. That would be like a good cartoon. (laughs) Well, okay. So the chickens out. The the duck and the goose. uh, I couldn't find any real discussions of this, but I mean, they they are uh, migratory uh, uh, birds, uh, so it's it's. It sounds possible, but are, are they are they ever domesticated? I don't know. I guess they are sometimes. Well, yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, listed as uh, as birds that we have uh, domesticated in hmm. some cases. Likewise, the goose, the guinea fowl, the turkey, uh, canaries, and finches. But uh, but of these, the domestication of the chicken, the duck, the goose, and the turkey, those go back thousands of years. But canaries only go back to the fifteenth century, and the finch to the eighteenth century. Hmm. But uh you know to, to put ourselves back in, in ancient uh, uh, shoes on this, right, uh, as, as one presumably you know picks up on the ability of the, uh, of the of the pigeon to carry messages, just think of the advantage uh, in a world where message delivery. Uh, is only as fast as uh, a human or a horse uh, and rider can uh, can travel across uh, either open terrain or more likely a series of winding paths or roads. Yeah, I mean, we take for granted now that we have wired or wireless communication that can send
1: information electronically or whatever. I mean, back then, a message had to be physically taken one way or another. Either you tell it to a person and they go deliver it in person,
0: or it had to be carried by hand. Yeah, you had to have a runner carrying it or carrying it to the next runner Um, and then yeah, yeah if you're going from point A to point B you're probably not able to go in a straight line uh, but the bird can. The bird can fly. You know, literally, as the as the crow flies.
1: Yeah, the bird also has the advantage. This is seen sometimes in the Song of Ice and Fire series, where uh, say if your castle is under siege and no person, no human messenger would likely get by without mm-hmm. being captured, a bird
0: probably could get by. Yeah, the I mean, bird can leave a besieged city and go relay a message. Um, you know, they might try and, and shoot it out of the sky with a with an arrow, but. Mm. Uh, That's why you have multiple uh, pigeons, uh, I imagine, or multiple owls or ravens in your fantasy set of uh, treatments. Birds can also carry messages quickly over
1: water. That's right. Humans can't, uh, or I guess maybe could by boat, but
0: yeah, it's it's easy to just to sort of focus on the sort of the primitive nature of tying a message to an animal with and 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 just forget the tremendous freedom of movement that a bird like a pigeon has. Uh, and then in terms of speed, uh, with a pigeon, we're talking speeds of of like 50 to 60 miles per hour and uh, up to record speeds. And I think this is, you know, when you're really pushing, when you're racing them, mm-hmm. uh, you can get into the low 90s. Horses, on the other hand, uh, you're only going to reach what, the the mid 50s, and that's going at full gallop. Yeah, and I, that's like a world record for horses. Yeah, that's not like, like a common gallop. That's like speed. really going. And uh, and again, the chances of you being able to send a message by horse at top speed, at record speed, uh, in a straight line, mm-hmm. like on this magical highway that you've built between uh, Fortress A and Fortress B, it's just not. It doesn't stack up against the power, the 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 uh, message delivering power of the pigeon. So to give everybody uh, you know some more ideas about just the the history the legacy of um, of carrier pigeon use I was looking at uh, the hallowed history of the carrier pigeon by Mary Bloom this is from the New York Times two thousand four and um, uh, so some of the the high points that the author uh, mentioned here and I believe this was uncovering a museum uh, I- exhibit about uh, the carrier pigeon but we have uh, like uh, in addition to mythical. Uh, uh, stories of Inanna and her association with the with the pigeon or dove. Uh, you also have biblical accounts such as uh, uh, Noah releasing uh, doves or pigeons. Yeah, it was to test whether the flood waters
1: of the great flood had abated. I think it's in Genesis chapter eight where. Uh, Noah releases multiple doves or either the same dove multiple times or multiple doves to go out and see if it can land somewhere. Uh, At first, it goes out and it can't find anywhere to land and it comes back to him. The second time, it goes out and it brings back a branch. And that means the waters must have receded from somewhere. And the third time it goes out, it just stays gone and (laughs) never returns.
0: So – If you love a dove, set it free. (laughs) So um, the ancient Romans used pigeons for chariot races to tell owners uh, how their entries had placed. Uh, Genghis Khan established pigeon relay points across Asia and much of Eastern Europe. Charlemagne made pigeon raising the exclusive privilege of nobility. Uh, Pigeons were used for military communication well uh, into World War I when the Germans uh, rolled out carrier, carrier pigeons with cameras. Uh, that were soon replaced by reconnaissance planes. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the end of the end of the war, France had mobilized thirty thousand pigeons, and they uh, they had declared that anyone impeding their flight could be sentenced to death. There's actually a famous story from World War One, I, I believe, about a group of Allied soldiers who had come
1: under friendly fire from artillery and only managed to communicate to their allies that
0: you know that, like stop shelling us by accident by the use of a carrier pigeon. Oh, it, wow. it saved many lives. Pigeons have been used to transport blood samples from remote regions, regions of uh, Britain and France. In eastern India, they were used for communication between remote police out, outposts, and as of at least last year, at least one of these uh, uh, lines was still in use. Uh, the U.S. has used um, pigeons to spot shipwrecks. Uh, drug drug traffickers have used pigeons, ah. uh, seemingly around the world. I was looking up various stories about this, and you know, I was finding hits from North, South, and Central America, as well as in the Middle East. You know, obviously, oh. you're not going to send like an entire brick of hashish up into the air on <laughs> a pigeon.
1: But if you want to send a small amount of something like across a border or policed area, yeah. yeah, like
0: you take a pigeon from its home, attach the drugs to it, and then let it fly home. Yeah, and that's exactly what some people have done. Uh, th- this is a fun um, account that my wife shared with me. She was remembering a West Virginia whitewater rafting place from uh, sort of like the pre-digital photo age. Mm-hmm. And uh, they used pigeons. So what they did is, um, you know, you're going on this whitewater rafting ride, right? And uh, uh, nowadays we just take this for granted, right? You ride some sort of a ride, like a roller coaster, and at the end they sell you a picture of yourself enjoying the ride. Mm -hmm. And of course now we do it with just digital photography. But this particular whitewater rapid place, the way they did it is they had a a photographer with a long lens up on a hillside where they could get a good shot of the river. Uh Uh, They would snap your picture as you were going down the river and then they would take the film, they would attach it to the homing pigeon, send the pigeon like to the end of the river where the pickup is. They would develop the film and then they would sell you the picture because, you know, this is a course of, that's when you want to sell the picture, right? You're just getting off the the rafting ride. You're excited like, woo, that was awesome. I didn't die. It was great. And then there's the picture ready to go like magic and you pay for it. Now that probably wasn't even possible until like celluloid or acetate film, right? Try to attach it (laughs) to type plate to your pigeon. It That's just doesn't right. work. <laughs> to understand that joke, make sure you listen to uh, our series of episodes on our other podcast, Invention, about the invention of photography. Those have been a lot of fun. If yeah. you're
1: not listening to Invention yet, what are you doing? Go listen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you can check out the website at inventionpod.com. Okay. I got one for you. You ever wonder
1: about the origin of the term pigeonhole? no I'd never thought about it but now I am yeah pigeonhole as a verb right like Mm -hmm. I don't want to be pigeonholed as just another whatever I I don't know exactly I guess it means like uh, it's sort of like the the, the idea of being typecast, yeah. right? Uh, I don't want to be pinned down in this kind of narrowly defined space. Well, apparently this expression has a very literal origin in the, the domestic pigeon raising trade. It comes from when pigeons used to be given like individual holes or recesses to nest in. And then after that, it later came to have another definition of, quote, one of a series of small open compartments as in a desk cabinet or the like used for filing or sorting papers Uh, And so that's like a standard definition, which I think morphed further into the more abstract metaphor of having your person pigeonholed into a narrow slot.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I'd I'd never thought about it before, but that makes perfect sense. And that metaphorical definition
1: came about, I think, in the 1860s, in the mid-late 19th century.
0: All right, so why and how do pigeons carry out these impressive feats of speedy delivery? Yeah, why them? Why not some other bird? Yeah. Why not owls? Why not owls? Why not ravens? Why not rats? Uh, Juan had the you know the the neighborhood house cat,
1: and I think you might be able to answer this question two different ways uh, that we could uh, that we can get into more as the episode goes on. But one explanation might be rooted in the sort of innate tendencies or abilities of each uh, of these animals, and another answer might be more rooted in just accidents of history.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so. Like we already touched on the fact that the the pigeon was domesticated uh, seemingly originally for food. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of like provided the, uh, the groundwork for further uh, domestic uses of the animal.
1: Yes, but it is certainly true that pigeons have some very impressive qualities when it comes to navigation and long distance travel.
0: Right, their navigational abilities are essentially twofold. So first of all, they have a compass system and this tells them which direction they're headed in. And the sun, the position of the sun and uh, the earth's magnetic field make this possible. But then they also have a map system which tells them where they are in relation to where they want to go. Now, and it's this ability that is a lot more controversial that we have uh, sort of competing hypotheses uh, competing theories uh, about how they're actually working. So it's not totally settled exactly all of
1: the methods that pigeons have to navigate the way they do and find their way back home.
0: Right. There's still, there's still research ongoing yeah. as to what's going on. And, and complicating all of this is the release site bias. Uh, this is uh, when birds go off in the wrong direction at release, uh, leading investigators to ask, well, what's happening in these cases to disrupt their return? Uh, what can we learn about the functionality by looking at the disruption events? Hmm. And so uh, the basic theories for how the mapping system works uh, are as follows. First, there's the smell theory. Uh, So odors carried on the wind allow the pigeons to map their way home. And studies have shown that the atmosphere does contain the necessary olfactory information. uh, And pigeons have been observed to get disoriented when their sense of smell is impaired or when they don't have access to natural winds at their home nest. Hmm. And then there's the Earth's magnetic uh, um, field lines. So like there is a theory that there's some kind of inherent magnetoreception in the birds. Right. As uh, Cordula v. Mora and Michael M. Walker pointed out in a 2009 study in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences, quote, pigeons may derive spatial information from the magnetic field at the release site that could be used to estimate their current position relative to their loft. Okay, so this
1: sounds like it might especially help with like initial orientation toward their target destination.
0: Absolutely, and again, working with that compass system. So these two things working together. Uh, now, there is also a, a third um, theory that I ran across, and this one's not as big as the other two, uh, but to just give everyone a, you know an idea of some of the uh, alternative ideas that are being uh, explored here, geophysicist uh, John uh, Hagstrom has this theory that they follow ultra-low frequency sounds back towards their lofts, and that, that this is why certain areas can confuse them and throw them off. He argues that uh, topographic disruptions and ultrasound account for why some pigeons are thrown off track in known disruption disruption zones such as in parts of uh upstate new york uh that was the, the region that the uh, uh that uh, hagstrom was actually looking at and conducting uh, you know some experiments in mm-hmm. uh and uh, homing pigeons they can hear sounds as low as 0.05 hertz so uh so they do have um, you know they do have impressive hearing
1: that that's bass,
0: yeah However, uh, it's also been pointed out, uh, particularly I was looking at a National Geographic article, uh, New Theory on How Homing Pigeons Find Home by Jane J. Lee. Uh, Pointed out that the that a given pigeon might use uh, you know either the smell or the magnetic field uh, mapping system. It might just depend on where they're raised. Uh, you know, leaning on magnetic fields in some cases, smell in the others, uh, other areas, or perhaps leaning on ultrasound if that uh, is is in fact one of the methods at their disposal.
1: Well, and that would sort of make sense given what we know about our senses that we use for navigation. I mean, it would depend on where you were that you were trying to find your way to, right? Right. Like some places it might be good to listen for traffic or something. If yeah. you, you don't know if you're like trying to get back to a trafficked area in an otherwise wilderness like area. Or it might make more sense to just look with your eyes and see what kind of place you're going to.
0: Yeah. I mean I, in all of these cases I keep trying to like put myself in the shoes of the pigeon mm-hmm. and imagine somebody like sticking me in a cage, transporting me, say, um, you know, Two counties over uh, releasing me in the wild and giving me a message to return to my ho- with to my house, uh, and I would probably just die in the woods in those <laughs> cases so it's uh, you know it's we look at something like the pigeon, an animal that is not um, held in high esteem uh, by most people you know we, we think of pigeons, we think of essentially winged rats in the city, mm-hmm. and we, we we may not stop to realize. Uh, you know what kind of amazing navigational abilities they have, uh, but they do uh, they the pigeons can do can, can do the, these feats that, uh, that that humans would be completely lost to try and replicate
1: do you think the pigeons? internal uh navigational computer is as annoying as the navigation app on most phones or like you know uh gps devices
0: um i i would think not because it's a part of them right i mean the, the, the annoying thing about uh gps technology is that it is external and uh it's uh, it's something we have to divert attention to or and or you know uh, we, we drop our phone uh, out of that little cradle or horsing around with it while going down the interstate. I don't know
1: what brand it was, but I, there was one I used to interact with fairly it wasn't mine it was somebody else's but uh but it it, it was incredibly passive aggressive so like anytime you missed a turn, you would almost hear it like get kind of huffy, it would go <laughs> recalculating. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, there are all sorts of weird quirks uh, like that. They've gotten a lot better, but yeah, it, it's still they, they don't still they still don't feel like a natural instinct by any stretch. Now, obviously, we could spend more time here talking about the uh, navigational abilities of pigeons and and certainly the way that pigeons and other animals, uh, uh, you know, seemingly uh, interact with the magnetic field. Uh, but we want to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to move on to the next uh, animal uh, in this episode. We're going to discuss. Uh, the owls of Harry Potter, but more specifically, the owls of the real world.
1: All right, we're back. All right, Robert, give it to me straight. What are the uh, what are the chances, the fighting chances of a military force that wants to deliver messages between its
0: ranks by the use of war owls? Well, it depends if we 're talking about uh, muggles or we 're talking about members of the wizarding community i 'm talking about real wor- real world here hmm. well, uh, just just it, take the pigeons <laughs> of World War I replace them with owls. what happens um, well, the, the messages don 't get delivered uh, mm-hmm. for starters uh, because I think ultimately an important part of this is the of course the legacy of using the pigeons yeah but the the, the question the, the bigger question is what what if there had been no pigeons? What if for some reason early on People had gone the direction of the wizarding community in the Harry Potter novels and had said, let's use owls. Let's let's not focus on any other animals. Let's focus on this species or this species of owl. Uh, can we use this animal to deliver our messages? Right. Whether rain or snow or dead of night, will this owl deliver your message? Right. And I have to say, when we, we set out to do this episode, my um, initial suspected answer was going to be, no, they can't and i suspected that the reason was going to be that owls are dumb. What? <laughs> that owls are like really dumb because and th- th- this is this is like this is pre-research but i've i found that multiple bird shows that i go to, you know, uh bird shows or uh like wildlife rescue uh places, places where they have say an owl that can't be re-released into the wild because it has a damaged wing and so it's used for educational purposes, mm-hmm. multiple times uh, the uh, you know the individual caring for the creatures has pointed out that well this owl uh, is really dumb it 's just not <laughs> a smart creature um, and so you know we have their are, their are limits on what we can expect from from it
1: that 's strange. I tend to find that people who work directly with animals are. Tend to they tend to err on the side of overstating the animal's
0: intelligence. <laughs> well, and, and I don't mean to speak for every like wildlife res- rescue um, uh, individual out there or bird show uh, worker, etc. Uh, but uh, you know, it stood out to me, and it probably stood out to me because there is this idea of the wise owl. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, you know, it's, it's firmly established uh, not only in pop culture but in our mythic traditions. The owl was the bird of Athena, the Greek uh, goddess of wisdom. Uh, They were thought to see the future, and of course, their uh, nocturnal nature and their silent flight made them creatures of occult fascination. The Romans saw them as portents of doom. Uh, They fulfill a number of roles among the native peoples of North and South America, ranging from dire omens to uh, you know actual spirits of the dead mm-hmm. and in some some traditions the owl is a, an evil creature, uh, and in other times it you know it 's associated with a goddess, uh, as in athena 's case or uh, in Welsh mythology, the goddess uh, uh, Blodewed is associated with the owl
1: it is not hard at. All to imagine how owls could come to occupy a, a place of like a terrifying spiritual power because have you ever been out in the woods at night and heard an owl? Oh, yeah. It's – I mean it's a cliche now because it's in the movies and all that. But in person, it is freaky.
0: Yes. Yeah. And then they have enormous eyes uh-huh. which you can't help but lock eyes with the owl and it's uh, it's intimidating to, to look at them. They're just – and they're just fascinating, uh, impressive uh, specimens. Um, and in terms of pop culture, who can forget the great owl from the Secret of Nim? You know? Oh, it's so good! Yeah,
1: yeah the kind of Wilfred Brimley faced owl. It had some heavy brows and mustache, from what I recall, but uh, it,
0: also glowing eyes. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, there are a lot of different types of owls. There's something like 200 species, roughly. They're amazing creatures, and there's uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 different species mm-hmm. of owl. Um, by the way, possibly the largest owl ever to walk the earth, the Cuban giant owl, uh, which stood about three foot seven or one point one meters tall, and was either flightless or nearly flightless. What a giant flightless
1: owl! Yeah. So, what was it like a like a raptor, <laughs> like run around along
0: the ground and
1: snatch up its prey?
0: I believe so. Yeah, and wow. you know, could, we, or could possibly have achieved uh, you know very limited flight, uh, much in the same way a chicken may fly. Wow. Uh, but but owls are, are specialized killers. They're, they're mostly solitary creatures. There's not a lot of social complexity to their brain load. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's more about uh, spotting uh, uh, and uh, and perceiving prey and then stealthily swooping down on them and uh, and uh, and snatching them up. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I was I was looking into this more and I, I found a book. Uh, titled The Science of Harry Potter. Okay. From 2002 by uh, Roger Highfield. And uh, it's uh, it's a pretty cool book. Obviously, um you know, it's it's been out for a few years, but Um, So this would have only been like the earliest Harry Potter books, right? Right. Not that the use of owls really changes much in the series. (laughs) It's pretty stationary. Owls are just how you send messages. Uh, But the the major reason, he says, that owls wouldn't be ideal for this sort of work is that most of them are rather sedentary. So they don't migrate uh, and migratory skills, uh, you know, would be ideal for this sort of messaging work. Um, It's... It's kind of like if you've heard – I know you and I have heard this uh, uh, presented in kind of like a a self-defense – uh, scenario mm-hmm. by saying that if, if someone is looking to say rob you on the street, mm-hmm. uh, they have a, uh, I remember the, the, the term used was they have a small office, they have a small work area <laughs> and you want to get out of that work area because there's like just a, you know, it's like a, a, a pickpocket or a robber is working mm-hmm. like within like one street worth of area. Yeah. And that's the, the s- similar case with a lot of predatory organisms. Uh, they ultimately have a small zone in which they operate. Huh. They operate very well in that zone, uh, but uh, you get out of that zone and you might be in the clear. Now, that might be a good point about the owls not being migratory
1: and being fairly sedentary. But then again, I believe uh, pigeons are non-migratory or at least most in most cases non-migratory. And yet they have this powerful homing and uh, messaging ability.
0: And then also, I mean, Highfield uh, does acknowledge that we well, do have some owls that are migratory. So you have, uh, I think, uh, two out of the five native UK owl species uh, are migratory in nature, and in theory could handle the ranges involved in most Potter World letters. Um, and they have great eyesight, which would be useful as well. So we think of like the ways that these uh, uh, you know, that, that, a, that a given uh, messenger species would uh, find the places it needs to go. Well, the owl has uh, excellent eyesight; could be it would be very useful. Now, as for their brain power, um, he he pointed out that there had not been a lot of uh, systematic study of owl brain power. Uh, uh, but this would have been two thousand two, right? But he said, but he also acknowledged that, you know, there had been some, uh, some work in, uh, you know, looking at the memory of barn owls, specifically by Eric Knudsen at Stanford University. And that research seemed, seemed to show that they did have solid working memories, um, while uh, on the other hand, some owl species uh, were considered to be, quote, rather dim uh, due to their, the predatory niche that they depended on. Now, but of course, in all of this, anytime we're talking about animal intelligence— mm-hmm it's always a bit unfair, right? Because ultimately, uh, a given species is as intelligent as it needs to be for what it does. Right. And, I mean...
1: Even given that caveat, I think we have learned a lot more about bird intelligence just in the past couple decades than we knew before. Like uh, it it is becoming increasingly clear how smart corvids are and we'll talk about that when we get to ravens in the next section. Mm -hmm. But we didn't always know everything we know now about bird intelligence. I I think the picture is becoming clearer that birds are much smarter than we have long thought. Though not every bird is equally more intelligent than we have long thought.
0: Right. I mean, it, it ultimately is a lot is going to depend on what that, uh, that particular bird or in this case what that owl does. Um, for instance, uh, I was looking around at some, um, some, some, other, some actual studies on this. Um, a 2013 study from the International Journal of Comparative Psychology found that the great gray owl or Strix nebulosa – which uh, nice. That's one of my favorites. There. That's that's. I mean, that like, sounds like a spell from Harry Potter. Um, the, these particular owls didn't do so hot in cognitive ability tests. They said, uh, "Quote: Our results suggest that the owls failed to comprehend the physics underlying the object relationships involved in the task presented." Uh, but then again, uh, as pointed out in a 2004 study published in Nature from Levy, Duncan, and Levens, burrowing owls, or uh, Atheni cunicolaria, which is another nice one, mm-hmm. uh, they uh, use dung as a tool, or at least they use dung uh, as bait to attract dung beetles, which are a favored prey. But you could, would that be a
1: like novel or uh, cognitively discovered behavior, or is that more probably like an instinct?
0: I don't know, but they they... They were framing it in terms of uh, you know this is a you know potential tool use hmm. that is uh, you know and granted anytime your tool is dung. Used as bait. I mean, it's not quite the same as using a, you know, a crafted uh, twig uh, to uh, to pull grubs out of a out of a log or something. Hey, just because it's dung doesn't mean it's not a tool, right? Yeah, but I mean, it still works for them. So, I mean, ultimately, uh, Highfield had argued that well, maybe, maybe the the, an owl could be used uh, for for such purposes. And I think uh, you know, based on some of the the other uh, research we're looking at, uh, it does seem like the an owl could pull off some of the feats involved.
1: Well, I think one of the big questions that you would need to ask about whether a bird could be trained as some kind of messenger would be how well do they respond to training?
0: Right, and to domestic, domestication. Yeah. I mean, sadly, the popularity of the Harry Potter um, books and movies reportedly caused an increase in the trafficking of pet owls, uh-huh. which J.K. Rowling has, has vocally uh, condemned, by the way. Do not... Uh, go out and try and buy a pet owl just because you like Harry Potter Uh um uh, but uh, one of the, the the important cases here is that that outside of the magical world or the the realm of professional wildlife rescue efforts, owls should not be kept in cages, uh, and they're you know they're not going to deliver your mail for you. Uh, but but more to the point, that you know handling pigeons is one thing, stuffing them in and out of cages by hand is one thing, but an owl has some pretty vicious talons that can certainly send you to the hospital. So owls are just generally not good candidates for domestication, right? Outside of a, a magical um, you know fantasy series yeah uh, it, it doesn't say like the talons alone would give me pause um, if you you know look up if you're if you're curious about this uh, do a google image search on like owl related injuries you know find some nice uh, swipes and slices here and there and it, it'll be enough to make you think well yeah maybe the, we should leave the owls uh, alone as much as possible <laughs>
1: All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we will talk about ravens as messengers.
0: All right, we're back. We've talked about real-world homing pigeons. We've talked about the owls of Harry Potter and to what extent the owls of the real world could or could not uh, match up to their uh, uh, to to the sort of message delivering service that we see in the Harry Potter novels. They don't and, seem like great candidates. They don't. Yeah, it seems like you're better sticking off sticking with the pigeon unless you have the magic to make it possible. Uh, so let's turn now to Game of Thrones to Westeros and the use of ravens. Uh, why are we not using ravens? And if we really wanted to, could we use ravens to deliver our messages?
1: Uh, this one, I think uh, the prospects are different, but maybe a little bit better than owls. So. You mentioned in mythology earlier that uh, you talked about the doves of the Noah story in the Mm -hmm. book of Genesis. You know, Noah releases doves and eventually they let him know that all the waters are gone from the earth. But don't forget, there's another part of the story that's very strange, doesn't necessarily really seem to add up to anything. But Noah actually sends out a raven first. It's kind of hard to tell what the raven is supposed to be doing in the story. But it starts off by saying, then it came about at the end of 40 days. So it's been, you know, 40 days and 40 nights of raining. Uh, At the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made, and he sent out a raven. And it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. And then after that, it just goes straight into the story with the doves. Uh, So that's confusing. I'm not quite sure what's happening there. I do know that there is some – there's some theories about the version of the story of the Great Flood that we have that say that it's actually – at least two different original stories that have essentially been edited together ah. in in the version that we have of the book of Genesis. So it could this could reflect different versions of the same story just sort of being stitched together, but I
0: don't know that. Mm, so like one of them is the George R.R. R. Martin Yes, adaptation. exactly. And it was never finished, so they had to just like slap it together with this other version of the story. Yeah.
1: So some other author is like, oh, I don't like the raven. I'm going to do doves. Okay. <laughs> but they also didn't want to throw anything away, so the raven... Raven's still there. But yeah, anyway, that's one of those interesting little textual mysteries. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, the question, would ravens be good messenger birds as in Game of Thrones? Now, in the world of George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire uh, and the TV show Game of Thrones, the people of Westeros, they – Use ravens mainly to send long-distance messages like we're talking about, Much, very, very comparable to the way people have used messenger pigeons. There's a scene where Maester Eamon, the, the maester, like the sort of uh, learned person at mm-hmm. the, uh, up at the wall, tells Jon Snow, quote, Doves and pigeons can also be trained to carry messages, though the raven is a stronger flyer, larger, bolder, far more clever, better able to defend itself against hawks. So I, I think we should keep that in mind, and we'll come back to it later to see whether Maester Raymond's mostly or not on the money there. Okay. Uh, the first thing we should look at, of course, is whether, in fact, ravens are far more clever. And I think the answer to this is a resounding yes.
0: Yeah, and this was, I guess, before we went into the research, my suspicion was they might be too clever. Like, that. And, and this may be, you know, unfounded uh, bias, but it was like, mm-hmm. maybe maybe the owl is too dumb Maybe the the raven is too smart, and the pigeon is just this perfect, uh, uh, you know, a mix of skill and, uh, and navigational ability. But also, uh, it's not going to you know get bored and curious on the way.
1: I can totally see why you would think that, but I don't think that's mm-hmm. what I would think after the research for this episode. I think that that sort of underestimates owls a bit, yeah. maybe overestimates pigeons and ravens, and and the unruliness of intelligence because it. Is the case that for many very intelligent animals, it doesn't necessarily manifest as like a a surliness and rebelliousness. I mean, often very intelligent animals can respond well to training and conditioning. Though often they respond in ways that are unpredictable to you, which is – that's an interesting thing we'll get to in a minute about ravens. So ravens are corvids. They're a family of birds containing many other kinds such as crows, jays, and magpies. Uh, Both corvids in general and ravens in particular have especially in recent years but for a long time been known to be extremely intelligent and uh, especially in recent years, we've gotten these studies that show these startling displays of intelligence in lab conditions – and there are tons of examples of this. If you want a whole episode focused on this subject, go back to the one we did a couple of years ago called The Unsettling Depths of Bird
0: Intelligence. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. That, we also talked a little mythology in that one. I remember Hogan uh, mm. and Moonen. Oh, yeah, the Norse mythology. Yeah, they uh, represent aspects of what
1: Odin's memory is. His thoughts and his memory. Yes, yes. Uh, Yeah, and we also talked about it with Jason Ward when he came on the show. Mm, Yes. yes. uh, To talk about the birds of the city. But, yeah, there are just so many interesting stories about what corvids and ravens in particular can do. Uh, Just one recent example I was reading about about the intelligence of ravens in particular came from a couple of researchers at Sweden's Lund University named uh, Kan Kabadai. And Matthias Osvath, who did a study where they showed really intelligent, interesting forethought, or at least what seems like evidence of it in ravens. So it's already been demonstrated many times that corvids, like crows and ravens, can use tools. And that's one of the hallmarks of complex intelligence, once thought to belong to primates alone. You know, if you go back and look at old textbooks, it's like only humans and the great apes can use tools.
0: But nowadays, corvids and, uh, and certain octopi take issue with that.
1: Oh, yeah, certainly. And it, one of the interesting things about this to me is that tool using suggests that if you go way back in time, rewind the clock and just let evolution run out in a different way, if other types of animals with the seeds of tool using intelligence could have independently developed their own technological civilization the way primates like us did.
0: yeah. What sort of world would it be if it was a world of uh, Corvid uh, technology? Raven world. (laughs) But so, yeah, we we know now that
1: Corvids like ravens use tools. And this more recent study showed that once ravens had learned that they could use a particular tool to open a box and get a piece of dog kibble, which they absolutely love – They would choose, if they could, to grab that particular box opening tool and keep it on hand when the food box was not even present so that they could use it to open the box later whenever it was presented to them, maybe, you know, minutes or hours later. So that's already interesting. Like the bird is is recognizing, okay, I can use this tool to get food. I'm going to hang on to the tool even though I can't use it right now. Yeah, they're thinking ahead. Also, the same researchers demonstrated evidence that ravens, on average, have a pretty strong ability to delay gratification to get better rewards. Oh,
0: like as as demonstrated in humans with the marshmallow test.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, of course, the classic marshmallow test— why am I getting a tickle? That that somehow people have questioned the setting of that test. Now, uh, uh,
0: well, there's certainly been a legacy of uh, reproducing the test and altering the uh, yeah. different different versions of the test.
1: Well, maybe yeah, I I don't remember what that is off the top of my head. Maybe we can revisit that in the future. Yeah, but that, that would be a fun one. Yeah. The basic idea is like you know if you can not eat this marshmallow for five minutes, you'll get three marshmallows yeah. or something. Um, and and th- they do a version of that kind of thing with different animals to test their abilities. By and large, animals are terrible at this, just hopeless. You know, they live in the moment. They have impulses. Immediately, if a piece of food is in front of them, they're going to eat it. But in this, uh, this current group, what the study found is that when you give the ravens a choice between, OK, you can grab an OK piece of food right now. Or you can grab a tool or a bartering token that the ravens have learned can be used to access a better, more delicious piece of food later. Uh, one of these experiments showed that ravens will pick the delayed path to better food more than 70% of the time. It, to be exact, it was 73.8% of the time they'd get the tool or the bartering token that they knew would lead to the better, delicious piece of kibble. Oh, wow. And in these experiments, the intelligence of the ravens in question was even sometimes an impediment to controlling the experiment. Because, for example, uh, I was reading a, a Motherboard article about their research where they talked about how there was one raven that started building his own tools to defeat the box. <laughs> wow. uh, and So instead of using the tool they were supplying to the raven, it was like, oh, I, I, can, I can get around this. And so it was like putting together sticks in an arrangement there where it could trigger and open the box without the... The tool they supplied it and also that one raven apparently started trying to teach the other ravens how to exploit the box oh wow And neurologically speaking, it's been shown, for example, in a 2016 paper in PNAS by Olkowitz et al., that birds like corvids and some parrots have an enormous number of neurons packed into the forebrain areas. Uh, Quote, large parrots and corvids have the same or greater forebrain neuron counts as monkeys with much larger brains. Avian brains thus have the potential to provide much higher cognitive power per unit mass than do mammalian brains. So, you know, mammals, primates like us, we've got bigger brains than birds do, but it seems like birds are really packing in the neuron connections in there to make make more with less matter. But there are also really startling uh, examples of social intelligence in corvids like ravens. uh, There are stories of how bird trainers who have close relationships with pet ravens can train these ravens to follow and fly ahead of them. Uh, There was even video I was watching before we came in here of a BBC Earth segment where they had a raven trainer who had a relationship, a previous existing relationship Mm -hmm. with this raven that he'd trained for a long time. And this guy is riding along on the side of a fast-moving truck with the raven just Like flying along, chasing after him, trying to land on his arm. (laughs) So, I mean, that kind of activity, like the raven chasing after him makes me think, okay, I see potential possibility for like a, a delivery system involving ravens. It doesn't seem entirely out of the question. You know, I'm just remembering when we did this earlier episode on bird intelligence. One of the things uh, we did was uh, I interviewed one of the researchers who'd worked on a paper that we talked about in that episode on on bird intelligence. Uh, uh, the researcher, owner Gunter Kuhn. Oh, yes. And you know, I, I was asking him about the differences in cognitive ability between different bird species, and basically the question of like, have we underestimated all birds? Or is it like just basically corvids and parrots that are smarter than we thought? And he was pretty generous in his estimate of all birds, though of course – Corvids and parrots, he said, you know, essentially there's no major cognitive difference between what they can do and what primates can do. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, he's putting them like way up there on the cognitive ladder. Like they're much smarter than we realized for a long time. But even birds like pigeons and chickens, he put more on the level of like mice and rats, which, you know, I think the average person would probably assume that, oh, mice are a lot smarter than pigeons. That uh, That's not necessarily true.
0: Yeah, and then the idea that a chicken is up there as well. I mean, checkmate, uh, Werner Herzog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Who I believe, what he was, he, uh, Herzog had said that saw something about there being just this like um, the overwhelming yeah. immensity of stupidity in yes. the eyes when looking look back at you, at you from you know, when a you look
1: chicken. In the eyes of a chicken. <laughs> I think what he's seeing there is not stupidity. He's seeing like profound ancient magic. That chicken is a dinosaur. Yeah, uh, it, it, I mean, birds are again dinosaurs. They are the avian dinosaurs. They're the dinosaurs that are left, and he is seeing a lineage going back tens of millions of
0: years all the way to the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, some deep cuts on Werner Herzog uh, oh. uh, interviews uh, here, but can't go too deep. Uh,
1: But anyway, I think it is fair to say that ravens are much more strikingly intelligent than pigeons, but also that pigeons are probably more intelligent than people usually give them credit for. Um, one, one interesting and funny Game of Thrones parallel I came across. There's a scene in the in the Song of Ice and Fire books where you know the three eyed crow in the books. He's called the three eyed crow in the books and three eyed raven in the show. Okay, the guy played by Max von Sydow in the oh, show. Yes, uh, in the books he you know he's talking to young Bran Stark. Which another side note, I just found out uh, the other day that Bran in Welsh I believe means raven or means oh, crow. Nice. Uh, but he, he's speaking to the character Bran Stark, and he says, It was the singers who taught the first men to send messages by raven. But in those days, the birds would speak the words. Oh. The trees remember, but men forget. And so now they write the messages on parchment and tie them around the feet of the birds who have never shared their skin. So I think this is different because he's talking about warging and magical stuff right. that's in the books. But he's saying it used to be that you'd like tell the message to the raven, and mm-hmm. the raven would go carry the message. And when it got there, you didn't have to take a tag of parchment off its leg. It would just tell you the message. And this actually does have some basis in reality because ravens, much like parrots, can be trained to mimic human sounds like talking even better than parrots in some cases. Oh, wow. And if you don't believe me, look it up. There are videos of this online, talking ravens. It's creepy.
0: No, it's not creepy. It's gorgeous. (laughs) Yeah, well, that, that's amazing because yeah, I would have just have assumed, assumed that, you know, this was just a purely magical wrinkle uh, in the world building here. Uh, but, yeah, the idea that you could uh, – that you can on some level uh, train a raven to mimic human language, that's, uh, that's incredible.
1: I think especially if you bred them for it, yeah. like the best the – be, the ones best at mimicking human language and talking, you bred them for repeating phrases and you train them individually in their lives. I don't know. I think it, it's not out of the question. But I don't know of any cases in the real world where there have been, like, breeding programs to try to bring out,
0: like, the best talking ravens. Right. Or even, I mean, I don't even know to what extent that's been done with uh, with parrots. I, I didn't yeah, look into sure. that at all. I wonder. Uh,
1: uh Anyway, uh, a few other things of note. So I was reading about uh, the University of Vienna biologist Matthias Claudio Loretto speaking to uh, the writer Ella Davies for The Guardian in 2017 on the question of ravens as messengers. So they're directly addressing this question from the the Game of Thrones show. And so Loretto is a researcher who works with ravens and he said the following. So he said they're good flyers, uh, maybe not well-suited to quickly crossing long distances Uh, Some bird species are already biologically adapted to rapid long-distance migrations. Ravens are not one of them. Uh, Basically, everywhere except in the Arctic, ravens are, quote, non-migratory and move rather opportunistically. That said, they can sometimes fly across moderately long distances.
0: And now I'm trying to think back to my, my maps of Westeros. And exactly what sort of distances we're talking about between, say, um, uh, the Wall and uh, Winterfell.
1: I think it's supposed to be pretty far. I think – I remember off the top of my head that Westeros is supposed to be roughly the size of the continent of South America. Okay. Uh, but to mention specifics about uh, ravens' traveling abilities, uh, that, that researcher I just mentioned, Loretto and uh, a couple of other researchers, published a study in Current Zoology in 2016 that GPS-tagged ravens to track their natural movements out in the wild. And they found a, a maximum movement range for one day of uh, of about 160 kilometers. That was the maximum. Uh, but this was not common, and it's way less than the daily traveling distance of, say, a car, you know, uh, and a lot of ravens. Mostly, what they did, the researchers discovered, was they hung around quote anthropogenic food sources. That's okay. not surprising. You know, like
0: people... like the bodies of of the dead that have been uh, <laughs> put up on pikes by uh, that, some victorious army.
1: That absolutely would be an anthropogenic food source. Mm-hmm. I imagine this is more likely a, kind of a pizza rat scenario. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, but uh, in terms of how fast they traveled, they could be found traveling at speeds of up to 40 kilometers per hour or about 25 miles per hour. Um, so let's see how this matches up against the Maester Raymond quote I read earlier about why ravens are better than pigeons at, at delivering messages. So compared to the pigeon, Maester Raymond says a raven is a stronger flyer, larger bolder, far more clever, and better better able to defend itself against hawks. So uh, when he says that a raven is a stronger flyer than the pigeon – It's hard to know exactly what he means there. It would depend on what stronger means. But in general, I don't think that's true. If it means faster, that seems to be a no because the Raven's normal top range of traveling speed looks like it's about 40 kilometers an hour. As we saw earlier, you mentioned uh, the, the pigeon flies more than double that speed and generally flies a lot farther. Now, if he means – by stronger, he means like more acrobatic. That could be true. Ravens do have some kind of – they got some good moves. Mm -hmm. Like, And uh, you can – if you watch Raven flight in slow motion, it can be very cool because they'll do like flips and twists and fly upside down and all kind of strange stuff. Now, in addition to the speed and distance of travel, I haven't seen any indication that ravens have the same kind of long-range navigational abilities that pigeons do. They obviously have some kind of navigational abilities, but I've not seen evidence that theirs uh, has been shown to be of the same power as that of the homing pigeon. So the whole ability to find their way back home from great distance, that, that may be more unique to the pigeon. Now, the part where he says it's more clever, that's absolutely true, undoubtedly more clever. Uh, But does that matter much in delivering messages? I don't know. How clever does it have to be to just get something from one place to another?
0: Right. I mean, if they're not actively engaging in in spycraft, if they're just uh, taking a a message and delivering it uh, without getting snatched up by a hawk from one fortress to another— uh, yeah. How, how? What do you need? I will come back to something you
1: just mentioned there, though. Uh, another thing, it, the Raven is generally larger. That is what, uh, what Mace mr Raymond says. Uh, that is certainly true. But does this matter if it's just delivering a small message written on a piece of paper? I mean, yeah. it might be able to carry a heavier load if it needed
0: to deliver something big. I mean, if you're smuggling milk of the poppy around, I guess it <laughs> might come in <laughs> handy. But, yes. but uh, yeah, for just a message, uh, what's that going to matter? Yeah, he says
1: it's bolder. I don't know exactly what that means, but I think that's probably true. If it means like more aggressive, more likely to approach unfamiliar objects, execute its training, you know, Ravens are, I I think it fits that they are smart and bold and they'll Do what they need to do. When it comes to being better at defending itself against hawks and other predators, I assume, ravens are large. They have very few natural predators, mainly just humans and some of the larger predatory birds, sometimes including hawks. Uh, So, yeah, I think that probably is right. They are better able to defend themselves. So I, I think based on what I've read, I want to say that while pigeons are generally preferred and it seems like they naturally, especially when they've been bred this way, fly farther and faster with a message, I don't see any reason why ravens couldn't in principle be trained to become messenger birds, especially if they're bred for that purpose over many years like the pigeons have been. I mean, that's another thing to consider, the domestication program here.
0: Yeah, again, we have to look at the at the, the longstanding traditions that have enabled the uh, the carrier pigeon uh, to to be the the species of choice for delivering small slips of paper
1: right uh, but then again, while it may be the case that pigeons are more suited for long range delivery. For multiple reasons, ravens might be more useful on other kinds of long-range jobs. I would say, for example, if you wanted to train an animal to actively do spying or reconnaissance of some kind, Mm. like I could imagine that you might be able to train ravens to go into an enemy encampment and recover certain kinds of objects and bring them home to you. uh, Probably better than you could train a pigeon to do something like that.
0: Mm. Like if you were to train a raven— uh, like basically, where the, the Raven knew that if it found a flash drive, yes, uh, it could return that and get a special treat, yes. And then you would just, you know, receive flash drives, and hopefully they would have something of of, of interest on them.
1: Yeah, and I think there are some reports that throughout history ravens have been rumored to have been considered for uh, for like war surveillance and and espionage purposes. I, mm-hmm. I don't know to what extent they've ever been fully used, especially not to the extent that pigeons have been. But there's your movie setup, uh, Raven James Bond.
0: <laughs> you know, I was trying to think of uh, examples of other messenger animals in fiction, mm-hmm. and nothing was really coming to mind except for the. Um, I, did, I, I didn't read the book series. My wife read the, the books, but the, the, at least the television series, The Magicians, mm-hmm. uh, that airs on uh, Sci-Fi, they have these talking rabbits. That they'll share these messenger rabbits, and they'll just sort of uh, pop into existence on, say, your table, and then they'll speak in this um, uh, this kind of like weird, uh, uh, almost Gilbert Godfrey-ish uh, voice to deliver the message. Wow. Yeah. But uh, nobody It's not. – we're not even going to consider the possibility of messenger rabbits <laughs> here on this podcast.
1: I think we should consider messenger Sicilians – the, like underground amphibians that burrow through the earth until they get to their target and then they give you the message. And <laughs> Messenger it's, worms. It's dirty. It's dirty <laughs> by the time it arrives. There's some significant slime.
0: Yeah, well, I, I wonder if there are any other really fascinating treatments out there. I mean, ultimately, the bir- a bird is going to give you the best bang for your buck, right? It's going to be able to to to, to fly. It's going to be able to travel in a straight line. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be able to, to execute a fair amount of... Uh, you know, reasonable, like, uh, stealth and avoidance of threats. And they're smarter than we thought. Yeah. Unless, I don't know, in West, in Waterworld, did they have, uh, like messenger fish that they used? Or anything? <laughs> Even that wouldn't be as good as a messenger bird though. No. Yeah. Messenger rats? I don't know. Uh, well, at any rate, uh, if you're out here, out there listening to this episode, perhaps you have encountered another messenger animal or another variety of messenger bird, uh, in fiction, and you'd like to share that with us. Uh, Likewise, uh, a lot of people still raise pigeons. I have a friend who uh, who just picked up um, raising uh, carrier pigeons. Oh, yeah? So perhaps uh, some of you out there have some expertise with pigeons that you would like to share. Perhaps you have some expertise with uh, with owls or ravens you would like to share. You have some insight on uh, the intellect of, uh, of the raven or the owl or the pigeon. Uh, obviously, we would love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes. You'll find links out to social media accounts, Uh, you'll find a link to our store. Uh, It's a cool way to support the show, but the best way to support the show is to rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so, and make sure you have subscribed. And uh, hey, make sure you subscribe to Invention as well. We already talked about it once uh, in the show, but inventionpod.com, that's where you'll find it, but you can also find that podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Huge thanks, as
1: always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at Stuff to Blow your Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.